0: I'm Deborah Ishihara and this is Talking Work. I like to check in every so often on what's happening with the gig economy because it's one of those areas that's constantly evolving across the world. I've invited two guests who work in this space to tell us all about it. Welcome to Talking Work, the employment law podcast by Yous Laboris. In each episode, we invite a different guest to discuss what's happening in the world of work. If you're an HR professional of any kind, this podcast is for you. So my two guests are Tarant Tawakli from our UK law firm, Lewis Silkin, and Boris Meniz from our French firm, Capston. Hello, and thank you both for joining us.
1: Hi, Deborah. Hi. Um,
0: now, um, let's just make sure we know exactly what we're discussing here. Boris, tell me first of all, how would you define the gig economy?
2: Um, well, th- th- that's a tricky one. Um, I-, I believe there is no single clear and established definition of the gig economy. And probably this expression reflects different realities depending on the country and its legislation. But generally speaking, uh, the gig economy defines a way of working that is based on people having more flexible jobs with a remuneration system that is directly related to the tasks performed rather than the time spent at work and very often with a higher level of autonomy.
0: Okay, and what's different for workers within the gig economy about the way they work compared to people in more traditional settings?
2: Um, well, in France, you can only either be employed or self-employed. Uh, gig economy workers in France are mainly self-employed. Um with work is highly regulated and not flexible. Uh, for example, it is normally not possible to offer part-time contracts for less than 24 hours a week, and three-quarters of the employees in France are working under permanent full-time contracts. Uh, Working for a company as an employee means working under subordinate relationships, which means working for someone who has the power to give instructions, to monitor the way the work is done, and to impose sanctions if it's not done properly. Uh, On the contrary, of course, self-employed workers never work in a subordinate relationship. They work under a commercial contract. But more generally, Uh, The way of working in the gig economy can often be described as more flexible and autonomous. You work or don't work according to your own decision. You carry out your missions on your own independently. And you often work at the same time for several companies, clients, even if they are uh, competitors.
0: Okay, now there seem to be both benefits and potential downsides to working in the gig economy. Taron, could you set out the pros and cons for us?
1: Of course. There's there's an obvious tension here. On the one hand, being a self-employed contractor affords you the autonomy that Boris has mentioned already and has proved hugely popular, as we've seen with the success of various tech companies and other platforms who have grown significantly in recent years using these sorts of models. And also the general rise in individuals deciding to work under this status outside of those more traditional structures. However, typically, contractors don't benefit from normal employment protections, which are normally applied only in respective employees. Things like protection from dismissal and in many markets, actually, even the minimum wage, rights to holiday pay and pensions or social contributions. So much of the case law around the world has been about ensuring that this balance is right. When should individuals be protected by employment legislation? Because they are in a subordinate relationship, providing their personal service. It's worth saying for the UK and unlike France and many of the other markets of the world, we actually have three employment statuses with an intermediate category here of worker. Um, Because we like to make things complicated, we have two tax statuses. And these individuals who are workers are normally self-employed for tax purposes but benefit from some, but not all, employment rights. And much of the case law in the UK has focused on the question of whether these individuals in the gig economy fall into the definition of worker rather than that of employee.
0: Okay, so in cases where there is a lack of protection in law then, are there things the platforms themselves can do to protect gig workers off their own bat, as it were?
1: Absolutely. And I think platforms have been alive to these sorts of issues for a while now. And we've seen various examples of attempts to address some of the concerns around insecurity and to bolster the protections for individuals who do operate in the gig economy. So I think four years ago or more now, we saw Deliveroo closely followed by Uber and others rolling out insurance products for individuals who operated via their platform covering things like third-party liability, but also personal injury and accident cover for those actually working via the platforms. More recently, we've seen some platforms and associations of platforms actually reach agreements with the um, trade union movement, those that more commonly operate in the employment sector. So in the UK, for example, we've seen Hermes, a parcel delivery company and more recently Deliveroo, reaching voluntary agreements with one of the major trade unions to provide additional protections to individuals who use their platforms. Uh, And going further still, we've seen situations in in markets like Italy where associations of platforms have actually sought to enter into collective bargaining agreements with representatives of unions to provide sector-based protections for those that work in the industry. So there is quite a lot that can be done and actually... We've seen some positive legislative changes in this regard. And I think there have been some changes in the last few years in France, which Boris, you might actually be able to shed some light on in terms of some of the additional protections that have become available in your market as a result of legal changes.
2: Yes, yes, sure. Um, Today in France, we have a piece of legislation that is dedicated to platform workers in which uh, it is specified that the platforms have a corporate social responsibility towards workers. Uh, The law provides, for example, that the platform must pay the cost of insurance against work accidents, the cost of training actions, these kind of things. Um, Platforms are also invited to adopt a a charter in which additional measures can be provided, in particular to improve uh, working conditions.
0: Okay, so let's delve in now to the perennial question of whether platform workers should be treated as employees or self-employed people, with a nod here to the fact that in a few countries, such as the UK, there is some middle ground. There have been court cases all over the world about this, and the judgments don't all go in one direction. So to get a flavour of this, maybe each of you could tell us about a case you've heard of in your country and the conclusions the court reached.
2: Yes, I'm going to start on this one. We had a very interesting ruling by the French Supreme Court uh, in April. Uh, it's the latest ruling by the Supreme Court uh, on the gig economy, by the way. Uh, it related to VoxTur, known as Le Cab, uh, which offers a chauffeur-driven service like Uber. Uh, one of the drivers claimed he should be under an employment contract and the Paris Court of Appeal agreed because the company was providing drivers with a smartphone and a car. Via a rental system, drivers were geolocated, the driver's fees were set by the company, uh, and the company was able to sanction the drivers through a kind of rating system. But the Supreme Court has overturned this ruling. Uh, It thought the reasons given by the Apple Court were insufficient to show that there was a subordinate relationship between the platform and the driver. This decision goes against some previous decisions of the Supreme Court itself, against Take It Easy or Uber, which seemed to consider that some key aspects of the way platforms work were in themselves indications of subordination. For example, it was the case uh, of uh, geolocation. With this latest ruling, the court has returned to a more traditional analysis and requires the worker to demonstrate the existence of instructions given by the platform control of the performance of the work and the power of sanction.
1: Coming to look at the situation in the UK, then, um, despite the fact that France has the um, impressive record of having three cases before the Supreme Court on this sector, I would uh, argue that the UK's probably had more case law on this topic than any other market I'm aware of. And I think we've actually been left in a situation where we have some pretty clear ground rules. Um, our Supreme Court, uh, in a case involving Uber drivers again, uh, where it held that they were workers under domestic law, made clear that the purpose of employment legislation, in particular the definition of worker in the UK, is to protect Vulnerable workers and the fact that a putative employer can dictate the contractual terms means that courts should be skeptical about those terms and consider the reality of the relationship in the round, considering the contract and the practices together through the lens of ensuring appropriate protection for vulnerable workers before making a decision on their status. So if the courts were looking at uh, whether an individual was a worker, they would apply the simplified test in the UK to decide whether someone is a worker. And on an employment status test, much like what Boris has described for France, a more multifactorial test looking at overall control and subordination. So where we look at how that breaks down in the UK, Where platform models have been upheld, this has been on the grounds that there has either been one, no obligation of personal service. So the individual in question was engaged to provide an output and was free to engage others, effectively subcontracting that service, showing that the engagement was for the service itself and not the labor of that or any particular individual. And this has been upheld in cases in the UK involving Deliveroo, all the way up to, up to our Court of Appeal, uh, and parcel delivery companies such as Yodel and DPD. The second ground on which these sorts of models have been upheld is where the individual has been shown to be in business on their own account. Uh, and in that case, there's an example of a, another um, ride-hailing platform uh, known as my taxi, where actually a black cab driver who used that platform to access additional customers was shown to be in business on, own, on their own accounts. They had a clear trade as a black cab driver day-to-day, and they used the My Taxi app just to top up that income. And in that case, the individual was found to be a self-employed contractor and not a worker. Where these models have failed, it's because personal service was expected, either contractually or in practice, or the level of control exercised was sufficient to show subordination.
0: Okay, so overall then, is there a pattern emerging internationally yet to the judgments of the courts across the world or not so far?
2: Um, Clearly not. Uh, We we can see that the same type of litigations exist in different countries around the world due to the specific legal issues raised by the gig economy. But there is no trend at the moment, Uh, even within the same country. To take the example of France, the case law remains really uncertain at the moment.
0: Now, in the time of Covid, most of us were actually very reliant on gig economy businesses to keep us going during lockdowns, delivering food and goods, etc. And we were all pretty glad they existed. But how have those businesses fared overall? And how has the pandemic changed them, would you say? Taran?
1: I mean, we live in interesting times, as the old proverb goes. Um, We've seen, as you say, a significant reliance on these sorts of businesses over lockdowns. I think in particular for the restaurant and hospitality sector, this was their only means of doing business for a very long time. And now we've come out of that We hope. Um, But unfortunately, we've launched headlong into a cost of living crisis where we're seeing discretionary spend really being squeezed and very different pressures on these platforms. In particular, I think more than most, the ultra fast delivery grocery companies, which have been hardest hit most recently by the lack of available venture capital funding. I think what I'd say about this is. Part of the reason for the success of these businesses has been their ability to adapt to market conditions through all of the challenges they face to date. And those who continue to do so will no doubt continue to succeed on their path to profitability.
0: Okay, now, Boris, as you live in an EU country, I'm going to turn to you for this one. In the EU, a directive on transparent and predictable working conditions has just come into operation across the 27 member states. Can you tell us something about the issues it covers and whether you think the directive will help protect the rights of gig workers?
2: Uh, yes, some, some workers were previously excluded from the scope of European directives because they did not fall within the definition of a worker. This was particularly the case for some gig economy workers, very short contracts, zero-hour contracts, etc. So these directives uh, aims at uh, correcting this by, by extending the scope of workers and ensuring they have more rights and protections. Member States will no longer be able to exclude from their legislation workers' who work for less than a month or for less than eight hours a week. Uh, it will create new rights for workers who work in a non-standard way. Employers will need to communicate working schedules sufficiently in advance so that the people can organize it themselves and it will prevent abusive use of zero-hour contracts. Some member states will have to make significant changes to the, to the law to accommodate all this, but countries like France already uh, largely has this protection in place.
0: So I gather the EU is also planning a directive specifically on the gig economy. Boris, tell me, what sort of things is that directive likely to concentrate on? And do you think that will clarify the law for gig workers?
2: The text proposed by the Commission provides a list of criteria to determine whether platform workers should be classified as workers or as service providers. If the platform meets at least two of these criteria, it is legally presumed to be an employer and those working on it will have a status of worker and gain access to the certain labour and social protection rights. In our view, the Commission's draft, and in particular the criteria it sets out, may be problematic and may need amendment. Plus, it looks like the text won't be adapted anytime soon and there are lots of legal questions about it, and whatever, whatever the final outcome, it won't stop people taking their situation to court, so the debate will probably continue.
0: Mm. And Taron, although it still feels really weird to treat the UK differently, could you enlighten us as to the possible direction of the UK? Will it do similar things or will it go its own way, do you think?
1: (laughs) I think trying to speculate about UK politics is a very dangerous game at the moment. Um, It's something that's been in the government's thinking for a while now. We've had several consultations for many years inviting opinions from relevant stakeholders on the issues and how best to resolve them but i think it's clear that there is going to be no immediate legislative proposals imminently and i think this reflects the fact that fundamentally this is a thorny issue and there isn't a neat way to balance the relevant interests i think much like what's happening at eu level which is to propose a blanket solution in the the style that boris has just described Our Labour Party, which is currently the party in opposition to government, has announced plans for a single status of worker, meaning that all people will be workers with employment rights from day one, other than the genuinely self-employed. Now, that sounds great in principle, but there really isn't much detail behind that now, including who are the genuinely self-employed, and how that will impact wider protections. At the moment in the UK, even employees don't get the right not to be unfairly dismissed until they have two years service. So there really isn't much detail on these proposals for now, but the intention is clear. And I think if we were to have a change in government, that's likely the only circumstance in which we'll see legislative reform in the UK.
0: Okay, well, as you suggest, UK politics is a bit of a minefield and probably a good place to stop. So thanks to both of you for those fascinating insights. Very much appreciated. And I'll periodically come back to this topic as it is evolving and it's definitely one to watch. We've recently been thinking about clear working conditions and have put a page on the implementation status of the EU directive that we mentioned on our website on transparent and predictable working conditions. There's a link to that page in the show notes. You can also find Karen's and Boris's contact details in the notes, and mine are there as well. And if you want to find out more about how Use the Boris can help you in your HR practice, you're very welcome to contact me at any time. Do browse around our website, by the way. There's loads of information there on all sorts of employment-related topics at com. I'm Deborah Ishihara. See you again next time. That's it for this episode of Talking Work, but we'll be back very soon with more insights from our guests from around the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit usaboris.com to access all our content resources and tools.